0: everyone is looking for purpose for a life that matters and we want to be a church that helps people find that this is the collective church podcast from a life-giving and vibrant new church right here in london ontario here's this past week's message from our pastor tyler from Good morning, welcome to Collective. My name is Tyler. If we've never met before, I'm one of the lead pastors. We're glad that you are with us. I wanna start with a quote that I've used through this series by Sam Chand. He has a book called Leadership Pain. And it says this, Pain is a part of progress. Anything that grows experiences some pain. If I avoid all pain, I'm avoiding growth. This series that we've been in has is, is called thorns into thrones. We've been talking about pain together. And I, I want you to know that Jesus takes suffering, and he even takes death, and he turns a symbol of death and pain. He has the cross and a, a symbol of agony and pain, the, the crown of thorns, and he turns it into a message and symbol of hope. He turns thorns into a throne of hope. When we look at the cross now, we don't see a symbol of agony and torture. We see uh, an empty cross that represents the hope that we have in Jesus. And next week for Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' arrival on earth, when Jesus split history and changed everything. Next Sunday, December 18th, we're going to be meeting at 10 a.m. And on your seats, you will have found a bunch of invite cards. One of the stats says that 80% of the people that we invite around Christmas and Easter say yes. What would it look like for us to become people that don't just invite but bring people to hear the good news of Jesus? And so I wanna encourage you and even challenge you to leverage this season in a way that brings hope, the hope of Jesus into situations that may be difficult and filled with pain. This week, as we wrap up this series, I want us to look at a passage in 1 Peter. So if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to 1 Peter. It's a fairly short book, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It'll be on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, you can follow along. 1 Peter chapter four. 1 Peter chapter four. And I'm gonna start in verse 12. Verse 12 says this. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through as if something strange were happening to you. Instead, be very glad, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering, so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all this world, all the world. If you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed, for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. If you suffer, however, It must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you for he will never fail you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. God, in these moments, speak to us. Whatever lies we're believing, when you confront them with truth, God, I pray that it be your voice, your words, not mine. God, I need you and we need you. You know what each one of us have walked in with. You know what each one of us even right now is struggling with. Maybe we got a text right before we came or there's something on our mind. You see us, you know us, you love us, but you do not want us to remain the same. So God, would your word do what your word does and change hearts, cleave into the the deepest parts of us and bring healing where we desperately need it. God, we love you, in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna walk and work through this passage together, this passage in First Peter. So if, if you look at the very first one that I started with, First Peter 4, verse 12, Peter the author says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery trials you're going through, as if something strange were happening to you. Now notice even the first two words here. Dear friends. Peter is not writing as someone who is dispassionate, who does not care. Instead, this is from a pastoral heart. This is someone who cares. He's saying friends. He's speaking to an audience. He's writing specifically to a group of people, but he's also speaking to us. Dear friends, not just friends, not just distant people, dear friends. And even here... Because we have dear friends, and then what comes next? We see something that is so valuable. We see that Peter is tough and tender. He starts with the tender, and then he brings the tough. Dear friends, and then he says, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. And as he's saying it like this, and he's reminding us that we are friends, that we are people that he cares about, It is not intended to diminish this next part and diminish the pain that we go through. But instead, Peter's heart is to reframe our pain, reframe our suffering, reframe our circumstances so that we might understand what the purpose of them is. And he says, dear friends, don't be surprised. Now, if you've been around for this series for any length of time, if you've been at each or you've met, if, if you heard a few of them, you'd know that this seems to be a bit of a pattern. Like, hey, if you're surprised when you go through difficult things, that's because you haven't, you missed something. Because Peter's telling us, don't be surprised, and he's not the only one that's saying that to us. Jesus tells us not to be surprised. Paul tells us not to be surprised. There's this pattern. Hey, listen, if you are facing difficulty and it is, throwing you. It is surprising you. Don't be surprised. And yet for many of us, that is our reality. We face difficult things and we go, I didn't expect this. Why am I facing this? Why am I feeling this? Why am I struggling with this? Why is following Jesus so difficult? And I think on one hand, there's a very real possibility that we've listened to people that have not told us how difficult it is. And they've gone, you know what? If you just follow Jesus, everything just falls into place and everything is easy. And then you live it out and go, that's not true. Like things fall into place, but never like I think they should and often in a way that doesn't feel very enjoyable. The other thing that I've learned about communication is I can say something to someone 25 times and still have them go, I don't remember you saying that. And so let me just be very, very clear. Okay? If, you're, if you've heard it from other people... Um, Let me just tell you, you can hear it from Jesus and Paul, and hopefully I can point in in that direction. Don't be surprised when you face difficult things. Following Jesus actually is costly. And if we come into it thinking that we can follow Jesus and yet hold on to things, and and thinking that we can buy into lies, we'll find ourselves disconnected from reality that, that God intends us to live inside of. If our vision of following Jesus is not actually aligned with the way of Jesus according to him, then we will find tension. This passage, again, it confronts this cultural lie that we swim in and we believe that you can somehow follow Jesus without paying a price. And it's not true. It's not true that you can somehow be a Christian in name only and not actually see it radically change your life. And we're in a unique cultural moment where we might even go, you know what, if I follow Jesus, it's really about becoming my best self. I'm just working towards self-actualization. I just want to be the better version of myself and sprinkle a little Jesus on it. And some of us, we live very aware that that is our reality, and some of us, we don't pay attention to how much that actually informs how we live. And let me again remind you, Following Jesus means laying down your life, means giving everything over for his life, that you die to yourself, that you lay down your life to choose to pick up his life, new life that he offers. And I said it last week, it'll cost us everything that doesn't matter and yet give us precisely what does. But in the short term, you're gonna feel some tension there. Because you're going to go, I'm giving up things that I don't want to give up. And let me just tell you, those things are not the things that you need to hold on to. Following Jesus means actually laying down your life and saying, I want your way, not mine. This is when you think about even the language that Peter is using here. It's so significant when he's saying, dear friends, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. At the fiery trials. That language, fiery trials, I think is really interesting. I was struck by this even this week, fiery trials. Anyone here still have cable? No one? Oh, yes, one person. Okay, so Lee and I, we're good millennials. We don't have cable either. But there are times that we've been in hotels. You ever find this? You're in hotels and you start like flipping through channels. And then you get sucked into shows that you never thought you'd even care about. I I found one time, I think, I was trying to remember, I think it was when we were down in the States where we're flipping around, and I got sucked into this show called Forged in Fire. You ever heard of that show, Forged in Fire? It's these, a bunch of these people that, that have to make knives and then test them. So they craft these knives from, from the ground up, they make these knives and then they have these series of trials that they go through to test the blade. They need to say, see, is it strong enough? Will the blade, will the sharpness, the edge hold up? I, I'll admit, I think fire is a lot of fun, but I've never been that interested in building knives. And yet I'm watching the show going, this is really fascinating to me. And if you know anything about making knives, I'm gonna guess most of us are like, I don't know, go to the store, you buy them, hope it kind of works out, maybe sharpen it every once in a while. Maybe you know that, that one of the processes that is essential to a knife actually having strength and keeping its sharpness is the process of tempering. And what tempering is, is taking this knife and subjecting it to high heat, high heat, and then letting it actually cool down, and then again, high heat, as long as you need to, and the heat actually works through the the steel or the the metal and strengthens it. Now, you listen to that and go, well, that's interesting, I suppose. The next time I use my kitchen knife, I'll keep that in mind. But think about that in the context of what Peter's saying, fiery trials. If we want to be strong, if we want to have resilience, if we want our edge to continue to be sharp, We need to be tempered. We need, in the hand of a master, to be subjected to heat. You look at these knife makers, and and they know that the heat is essential to actually create the kind of blade that does what it's intended to do. And I want to let you know from a spiritual perspective that in the hands of our master, God the Father, that he can use heat, fiery trials to temper us and strengthen us and hone our edge so that we can do everything we were called to do. But if we want the strength without the heat, we'll miss it. And so many of us go, I wanna be stronger, I wanna be more resilient. And he goes, perfect, I'm gonna use fiery trials. And you go, whoa, whoa, time out here. I don't wanna go through fiery trials. And I love the significance here because it reframes our thinking around why we, face, why we face things that seem to be where God is turning up the heat. And we're like, wow, this seems harder and more difficult. Actually, when you look at Jesus' disciples, you find over time that, that Jesus actually turns up the heat on them. It starts with, uh, come and follow me. And then near the end, it's like, hate your mother and father. And you're like, whoa, how did we get there? And Jesus is working through this process of tempering and turning up the heat. This is true in our own lives. God uses heat. He uses fiery trials to temper us, to hone us, to strengthen us so that we might do what we're intended to do. And in case you've missed it, in case you're not picking up what I'm putting down, I want to remind you that you will absolutely go through seasons of testing and tempering. I won't ask you to put up your hand, but I would be willing to bet that some of you are feeling that right now. You're going through a season, Rico. I feel like I'm just being tested and tempered, and it just seems too unbearable, and I wanna encourage you, let the heat do its work. Let the fiery trials do what they're intended to do. There is purpose in that. Do not be surprised at the fiery trials that you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. One of the challenges in our dynamic is we go, am I the only one? Everyone else seems to be posting on social media, their life looks great, and I feel like I'm going through trials. And then you start talking to people, you're like, oh, you too? You just, you're just pretending? Like, the lie that we believe is I'm the only one. I'm the only one that's dealing with this. I'm the only one that's feeling what I am feeling, but that is not true. Don't be surprised as if something strange is happening, because this is precisely the process that God uses to refine us and to strengthen us. And if you want to dig in more to the purpose of pain and what God does through pain, you can go back to, to week one. But just as from a pastoral perspective, as a pastoral note from me, Instead of seeing the circumstance you're going through, the fiery trials and thinking that somehow means God is punishing you, let me suggest to you that it's actually the most loving thing that God can do. That God doesn't want us just to remain where we are, that God actually sees us, sees potential in us, sees areas where we can be who he wants us to be, and he puts us through fiery trials, and he he lets us go through difficulties in order to do what he needs to do This is love, that God our Father looks at us and says, I care too much about you to let comfort be the goal. Instead, I want you to discover who you were meant to be. But in order to do that, because all of us say, I want, I want to be the best version of me. I want to find my calling. Am I willing to endure fiery trials to get there? If that's the process, one of which that God uses, am I willing to submit to what he is trying to do? So don't be surprised. In verse 13, instead, be very glad. For these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. I spoke about this in a previous week, but it's really important for us to be reminded that suffering is directly connected to future glory. Present suffering is directly connected to future glory. That's something that Jesus modeled. We see in Jesus' life, and we partner with him in that. Suffering and glory are interconnected. He is the one that turns thorns into thrones. But the reminder is we don't suffer alone. We suffer with a risen Savior who conquered death, took a symbol of death and punishment and turned it into a symbol of hope. This is our hope. This is our reminder. He overcame death. And so anything that we go through, it, is, it pales in, in, in comparison to this miracle of life from death. Verse 14 says, if you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed for the glorious spirit of god rests upon you if you suffer however it must not be for murder stealing making trouble or prying into other people's affairs notice that first section where it says that you are if you're insulted because you bear the name of christ you will be blessed that stands in opposition to hashtag #blessed in our world right? Like you're like, I want, give me the blessings on blessings on blessings. And you go, okay, perfect. You want the blessings. I want the blessings. If you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you'll be blessed. And you're like, huh. A different plan might be good or whatever. Like that's, that's difficult. And yet that is, what, that is what we know to be true. And let me just suggest to you, because we, we tend to be very North American centric. And many of you know this, but let me just remind us. In, in the Middle East, there are places that if you are Muslim especially, if you profess faith in Jesus, you don't just change your life in the positive. Your whole family disowns you. Your family goes, yeah, we're done with you. So choosing to follow Jesus is choosing to reject every single person that you grew up with that you've known and loved your whole life. Like that is, that is cost. There are other places in the world that if you follow Jesus, or so you're called a follower of the way of Jesus, you don't just get in a little bit of scuffle with people. You actually can go to jail, be murdered, be martyred. Your family can be taken. Your family can be martyred. So you think about this reality. There are places in the world right now, 2022, where following Jesus is not just something that if you say you might get someone giving you side eye or rolling their eyes, it could actually cost you your life. And when you look at the original text and who, who this this book was written to who Peter was writing to, it was, he was writing to a group of Christians that were actually facing real persecution. They, they, they were facing threats of death for their faith. Now, I want us to, and not in comparison, but just to call reality what it is, I want us to consider what is our reality in North America? There are places around the world that following Jesus could, could literally cost you your life. What is the reality in North America? Well, increasingly, Jesus' ethic is seen as outdated, seen as harmful, and by some, even as oppressive. And so we are facing a unique moment in our culture where increasingly the way of Jesus is discordant from the way of culture around us. Because as, as followers of the way of Jesus, we believe that Jesus actually gets to tell us how to live that he actually gets to get in our business, that God actually gets to tell us how to live. And in a culture that is obsessed with personal autonomy, this naturally creates tension. Because if we're obsessed with going, I wanna do what I want, when I want, ultimate freedom is being able to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whoever I wanna do it. And then we come face to face with Jesus that actually says, I have a way of life. I have a way of life that is flourishing. Your way of life leads to death. My way of life leads to life. It still creates tension because you go, wait, I I have to let him tell me how to live my life? I want to do it my own way. This is the tension that we experience in 2022 in our cultural moment. And I look at all of that and I've heard it, especially in the states where that gets Treat it as if, like, it's, it's something that we should all fear. Like, you guys, everything's going bad. It's all blowing up. And everyone's like, oh, no, it's so terrible. What are we going to do? God's not in control anymore. I don't know how I'm going to handle all of this. Let me just suggest to you that this has the potential to be one of the greatest moments for us in our lifetime who follow Jesus, historically, the, the, the environments that the church has thrived. If you think right now, the places in the world where the church is thriving, where people are coming to faith radically, you wanna know where it is? The places where it's the most difficult to be Jesus followers. There is a direct connection. And I get it. There's this part of us, you're like, I just, I don't wanna have tension with other people. I don't want them to look at my life and think I'm all sorts of things. I, I get that. And yet, the history of the church has always been where we are set apart, where we are countercultural is where we are the most effective. And when the church is in line with the cultural moment, it tends to lose its salt. It tends to lose its flavor. It tends to lose its impact. And so this moment where what we believe actually stands in opposition, whether it's in significant ways or small ways in what we're hearing around, this is a significant opportunity for us. Jason Ballard, who's a pastor of the Way Church in Vancouver, he was in this room that I got to listen to that was really helpful as he was talking about what we're experiencing as Christians in Canada. He was giving two extremes. If you think about about a range, for my visual learners, you think about a range, on one side you have positive favor. Everyone loves Christians, they're the greatest, they represent the ultimate in academia or in compassion, and you go, okay, that's the positive side, The other side is what we're seeing in other places where it's full persecution, you could die. Now, one of the challenges is that as we've noticed a shift, we've gone, we're being persecuted, and you go, to our brothers and sisters that are losing their life, I go, hold up, maybe not quite there. But what we have done is we've shifted, and so we've moved from it being a positive favor, where we have positive view, where we're treated culturally as if we have positive value, we've moved to then neutral where it's like, eh, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, it's fine, and now we've switched into just beginning to feel that negative favor, where instead of it being like, you're the greatest, now we go, mm, no, what you're saying is, is, is a real problem. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed that shift? I mean, I felt it, and even when I heard that language, I was like, yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. Because we felt for a while the the neutral part where it's like, you know what, as long as you don't say anything, it doesn't matter. To now where it's like, if you say anything, then it's a problem. And so you go, okay, we're feeling some of that. And again, let me just be the one one to say from a vision perspective, this is good. This is good because it causes each of us to go, what do I believe? Does it change how I live? Am I willing to actually do what he says? It creates a moment for us that is significant. What I would suggest to you is that people around us do not want us to look like everyone else. They want us to actually look like Jesus. And so if we are in line with everything and and we just kind of go with the flow instead of actually going, Jesus, what do you want in us? What are you challenging in us? Who do you want us to become? That opportunity to look more and more like Jesus is significant for us. But the truth is, just like Peter's saying, you may be insulted for your faith. I mean, we probably at this point are not going to give our lives as martyrs for our faith, but I think it's a pretty fair assumption that we're gonna be insulted for it. I think it's a pretty fair assumption that we're gonna have people that say certain things about us as we are trying our best to follow Jesus and what he says. We will likely be called names for our views. And take your pick with some of the big ones. Like as Christians, we may, we may have someone call us names for our view of unborn lives. We may have someone call us name, names for our views of Jesus's sexual ethic. We may have someone who calls us names for how we deal with the poor and the marginalized and the people that desperately need our help. We may be called names for how we fight for unity even when we don't agree on everything. And I could keep going, there are many places that we could be called names. Some say we're too harsh, some say we're not harsh enough. Some say we're too left, some say we're too right. Because the way of Jesus does not fit neatly into human categories. It challenges us. The same Savior that was on the cross between one person who denied him and one who gave his life to him is the one that we follow living in the tension of what does it actually mean to live like that? And as we try our best to do that, and to go, I don't know, I don't know how to do this, and yet I want your your will, not my will, we may be insulted. If it comes as a surprise to you, it wasn't because I didn't say something. The truth is, if we're actually following Jesus, We'll, insult, we'll be insulted by people. Again, some that think we're too harsh and some that think we're not harsh enough will find places where you go, you know what, I feel like there's both sides are coming at me, which if you look actually at Jesus, probably is a bit of a good sign. As we try to lay our lives down with this cruciform, cross-centered life, And so, according to Peter and according to all the other other authors that we find, we're willing to be insulted for the things that matter to Jesus. Peter actually says, if you're insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you'll be blessed for the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. And you go, okay, that's really, really good. But there's the next part that he says that's interesting. Because the problem for some of us is we might actually say, I'm suffering, I'm willing to suffer, but the truth is it's not suffering because of the way of Jesus, it's because of choices that we're making or things that we're saying, that what we're doing, what we're actually doing with our lives is creating damage. The truth is we may even be doing the right thing, but we're doing it the wrong way. And look what Peter says, he says, if you suffer, however, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. Now, we see that list, and we're like, okay. We don't wanna suffer because of murder. You're like, phew. Like, hopefully, everyone in the room's like, well, I'm good on that front. I haven't murdered anyone lately. I think I'm safe. I'm not getting insulted for being a murderer because I'm avoiding that. And then the next one, you're like, stealing. Okay, okay, okay. I had that one time in grade three, I stole that pack of gum, I'll admit that, but generally, I don't, I don't steal. Maybe music and maybe movies sometimes, but other than that, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty good. And then the next one, you're like, okay, uh, or you must, you must not suffer for making trouble, and you're like, okay, okay. I think I'm pretty good. I don't think I make too much trouble. I think I kind of float under the radar. And then this next one, Peter does like a full turn, and he says, uh, he makes a turn that incriminates many of us, and he says you must not suffer for prying into other people's affairs. And you go, huh. Okay, so what does that mean? Because we have a, a lens that we would look at things. So we go, what does that mean? Does that mean just mind your business? Just back off, just mind your business. Is that the North American way of like, you do you, I'll do me? Doesn't matter. Is that, is that what he's saying? Short answer, No. What does that mean, prying into other people's affairs? One of the other translations actually talks about meddling. Now, I want us to think even about this, this prying into other people's affairs. It it creates some tension for us because we can think a lot more with the 2022 North American worldview than the Jesus worldview where where we go, I'm not supposed to, as a as a Christian. I'll just talk to people that would call themselves followers of, the, of the way of Jesus. We're not supposed to talk to other Christians because we don't judge people. We don't say stuff. We need to we need to keep our own, worry about our own stuff and let them figure out their own stuff because that would be judgmental, right? That's some of the framework that we bring in. But is that true? Is that actually what we're told, or is that the cultural narrative that we've been told? I want to let you know that the Bible is very clear. The Bible is very clear that we are responsible for speaking to our Christian brothers and sisters. We are responsible in the context of, of Christian community to talk to each other and to confront areas in each other that are not meeting up to the standards that God lays out. That we are responsible for family discussions with each other to go, hey, something's wrong. Now, what we aren't responsible for is going to every person that does not believe Jesus and condemning them for living differently than we do. Because the reality is they have not chosen to live under the the lordship of Jesus. But if we have chosen to live under the lordship of Jesus, surrendering our life, that in context of family, we need to be willing to point out areas where that there's some disconnect, where there are some challenges, Okay, so what does this mean, prying into other people's affairs? Well, I mentioned the word meddling. One of the other translations says we shouldn't be people that meddle in other people's affairs. Now, that that holds a different kind of meaning, doesn't it? Prying into people's affairs, you're like, okay, I understand. But meddling in other people's affairs, it attaches intent to our action. So here's what this looks like. If you are meddling into other people's affairs... Your goal is not someone else's Christ-likeness. You want to know more than you should know so that you can feel moral superiority. You want to know about all the deep, dark secrets so you can go, oh, I'm so much better than them. I'm just, I'm, they just, they need so much work, but I, look at me. Right? We've been around that. And if we're being honest, all of us have had a little bit of that in us sometimes, where you feel this tendency to compare. And someone who meddles in other people's affairs, they like to collect information so they can create damage. The intention is not to heal. The intention is to harm. The intention is to to use what we learn as we get involved in all the little things to, to our benefit and to the harm of someone else. That is not the way of Jesus. But let me be very, very clear. If you are a follower of the way of Jesus, you desperately need a community to point out your blind spots. The reason we have blind spots is because they're blind spots that we don't see. We need other people to go, hey, have you noticed this? And, and I don't know anyone that hears that and goes, thank you. Initially, you're like, you feel this need. To, I need to defend myself or I'm not. But if you know that that person actually loves you and wants the best for you, it, it comes across completely different. We do not get to, and this is again for those of us that call ourselves followers of the way of Jesus, we do not get to parrot the cultural view of personal autonomy. We have been bought and it cost Jesus everything and we gave our life to him and now he actually gets to tell us how to live. And beyond that, we are grafted into his family and the most loving thing that happens in family is to love each other enough to speak the truth to each other in love. To be the kind of family that doesn't watch someone going and, and it's like with my little kids. Lee and I have two kids. Ava is six and Parker is four. We don't crank the oven, turn on the burners and say, have fun kids. And they're like going to touch it and we go, ha ha, yeah. Hey, you do you, you do you. Ava, you do you, whatever. We don't like let Ava get a bobby pin and go up to the outlet and go, hey, she's just expressing herself, right? What do we do? What's the most loving thing we do as a parent? Stop! Don't do that. So we had this conversation with Ava this past week. This is off the cuff, not in my notes, but it, st- it sticks with me. We had this conversation with Ava uh, this week where a little boy said to her... Um, if you give me that toy, then I'll be your friend. And I was like, time out, excuse me. And, and she, I said, whoa, Ava. Anyone that says they want to be your friend because you give them something is not a very good friend. And she's like, but I thought sharing was a good thing. I was like, oh, <laughs> you're <We're> like, <laughs> and you go, yes, <laughs> sharing is a good thing. And so our boundaries. And you go, that's the reality of what it means to parent and be family, for us to go, let's, let's talk through those areas. If we identify some places where there, there's areas of growth, we want to do that together. That's so important to us, our responsibility. And the problem is that, that sometimes it can be reduced to um, pastors or leaders. Let me just say, all of you, your responsibility is to lovingly challenge and confront each other. It's to actually look at each other and go, I'm willing to tell you what no one else will because I love you enough not to leave it unsaid. But if we revel in that, there's something wrong. If we're excited, like, oh, I can't wait to point out where you don't measure up. (laughs) You suck. You suck. Now, listen, we'd never say that out loud, never say that out loud, but our heart says that. And you go, oh, you suck, you're the worst, I'm so much better than you. If, if our heart is even 1% that, it's a problem. If our heart is not in complete humility going, I just, I just wanna see us, us, me, you, I wanna see us grow to become more and more like Jesus, if that's not our heart, then it's a problem. If we hold our involvement in the details of everyone's life as as this badge of honor, I know so much about what that person is going through, that's a problem. If we love to get all the details so that we can tell other people or hold ourselves in higher regard, that is a problem. If our goal is to make someone else feel worse so we can feel better, that's a problem. See, we can do the right thing the wrong way, and it harms but what happens is for many of us, we just go, I don't want to do it the wrong way, so I won't do it at all. That's not a better option. If we are more focused on everyone else's lack of growth at the detriment of our own, that's a problem. So, Peter doesn't say it, but I will say if you're suffering because you're a gossip or Pharisee or someone who, for whom drama is like a fine wine, oh, I love the drama, that's a problem. And that's not just me speaking. You'd find that all throughout the New Testament. It is not to be celebrated. Okay, so let me just summarize that one thing. We need to, you don't get permission to to avoid this. We need to lovingly confront other Christians, especially those we have actual relationship with. Because for some of us, we're like, I'm gonna just confront everyone I can. You have an issue, you have an issue, and we haven't actually built a relationship with people. The other side of that is there are people that are like, I don't know if I have enough of a relationship, but you'll never have enough by whatever criteria. There, there's a tension on that of going, do I have the ability? Do they know? Here's the thing. I'll listen to someone that I know loves me, loves our family, loves the vision of collective. I'll listen to that. But if, I, if my sense is that person does not love me, it's really difficult for me to hear what they're saying. Anyone relate to that? If you don't think someone actually loves you and saying something for the sake of you and and the better of you, it's really hard. And you go, I I don't want to hear what you have to say. And so we do need to pay attention to the, the equity that we've built with others, the relational equity that we have in others' lives. We need to lovingly challenge and confront each other, but we're never invited to do so with the wrong motives. And so Peter says, if you suffer, however, It must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs or meddling with other people's affairs. But it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. Praise God that as we suffer, we are called his kids, that we are actually in line with him, part of his family. Praise God that our identity is firm, not in what other people say, but what he says about us. This is the reminder for those of us that follow the way of Jesus to again to consider, is my identity firm in what he says or what everyone else says? And our identity first and foremost needs to be found in who God says we are and who Jesus says that we are. And then Peter takes it in a slightly different direction in verse 17. And he says, for the time has come for judgment. Now, this is why that word that I was giving around us, challenging and confronting each other is so important. For the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news. This is like a dirty word for us in 2022, judgment. Judgment. Because we're like, I don't want to judge people. But what does this say? It says that God will judge his household. There is judgment for God's household. Now, some of us, again, and I'll just, some of us, this becomes a point of pride. We're like, ooh, he's gonna judge you. We're like, yeah, yeah, right? Again, none of us would acknowledge that. We'd go, I would never do that. I would never do that but there's a part of us sometimes that we're in environments where we're like, I hope they're listening to this. (laughs) And you're like, okay, that's not a good heart. It just isn't. God's gonna judge his household. Do you know what that should do for us? All of us. We should feel the weight from that. We should feel responsibility for that. We should hear that, and it it should put us into a position of sober reflection. It should not elicit pride. God actually... Actually, cares how we live. God actually watches our life and cares how we live. God actually judges what we do with what we've been told, with what He's asked us to do, with how we respond to Him. God actually judges that. God actually looks at us and says, I am paying attention to how you live. I'm paying attention to my household, my family. And in the context of God's family, He's the dad, He gets to set the rules. And he gets to enforce those. And he looks at us and he says, are you living to what I ask you to do? And this is not one of those things where he's going, you can never measure up. He says, I gave you my son. You've surrendered. Your identity is found in him. But now you actually have to live in a way that looks more and more like him every single day. For so many of us, our view of judgment is more shaped by culture than it is by Jesus. Jesus. And I want you to think about Jesus for a moment. If you're not super familiar with the Bible, then I I think this is helpful. Jesus is described as being full of grace and truth. Not just truth, not just grace. Full of grace and truth. And if you think about it on a pendulum, all of us have natural tendencies. Some of us, we're very, very comfortable with truth. It is not a difficult thing for us to confront someone and to say, hey, this is out of alignment. Hey, this is wrong. That's easy for us. For some of us, we're on the other side where we go, um, can't they just figure it out on their own? Like, I, I wanna just, I wanna extend grace and just let them hopefully sort it out. I don't need to say anything. Hopefully, someone else does or whatever. Like, they'll get there. And I wanna just suggest to you that either extreme is not helpful. But if we want to look like Jesus, who is full of grace and full of truth, then we have to embrace both of those realities. We have to extend grace. We have to be people that are willing to to embody grace, and we also have to speak truth. We hold those intention. We don't want to embody one or the other. We want to embody both if we want to look like Jesus. We want to love people well, and the most loving thing that we can do is sometimes to tell them the truth. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do is to extend grace. And we need to walk step by step, in step with the Holy Spirit as he guides in those conversations so that we might embody grace and truth. Why? Why does that matter so much? It matters because Peter tells us that God takes his church and how we live seriously. And he doesn't just invite a couple of people to do something about it. He says, hey, welcome to family. Everyone pull up a seat. Everyone plays their part. And all of this is so counter-cultural. And I want you to know that this idea that we are being held to this standard, that I feel that weight as a pastor I feel the weight of responsibility. I have moments where I go, okay, grace and truth. What does it look like? And there are conversations you go, I don't, I don't really wanna have this conversation, or or areas where, where he holds me to certain things, and you're like, I wish this was just easier or simpler, and yet I don't get to just go, eh. Instead, I go, God, I I can't bear this burden by myself. With you, I'm willing to have your way. I want to do what you're asking me to do. And that is not just an invitation for a pastor or a leader. That is an invitation for any of us that call ourselves followers of the way of Jesus. For us to go, God, I want to embody grace and truth. You look at your household and you ask me to play my part in increasingly making it healthier and healthier and more like you. God will. He'll hold me accountable for how I live. He'll hold me accountable for how I lead. And he will hold you accountable for how you live. This should, this should bear, we should feel some of this. This is not something that we should just go, ah, whatever, it doesn't matter. It, it matters. God of the universe sees you, sees all of you, loves you more than you possibly know but does not invite you to stay there and go, well, just live in light of grace. He goes, live in light of grace and time to do some work. And so your identity is not in your activity. It's not like where you go, okay, I get grace. I earn my grace. No, no, no. You, You can't earn that grace. But now you are invited to live in light of the grace that you haven't earned. To live from an identity of knowing who you are. Peter says in verse 17, for the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? There's implication here for those who have not put their faith in Jesus, their trust in Jesus. I do want to let you know that God gives you a choice. It's the beautiful thing about who God is is he gives us a choice. So for those of us that choose to follow him, he welcomes us in, but for those of us that say, I don't want this and I want to reject you, he gives, us our, he gives us that choice and he gives us what we want. And so the very thing that we desperately need, we say, I don't want you. I don't want you, God. I don't want to live in light of who you are. He goes, okay, and he backs away. God is not trying to force himself on anybody. He invites us to surrender to him. He invites us to become his children, but he also gives us the freedom of choice to reject him. But if we reject him, there is a cost to that. That when we reject God, that there is significance to that. He gives us what we want, and the cost is total. This this reminder for us that that judgment is in, in, in God's household, but also that there are people that have never obeyed the good news of Jesus is a huge part of why we started Collective. I, I've said the story, and I'll say it a hundred times until, until God takes me home, that I was down in the basement of our house in Calgary, and I was reading stats about London. Now, if you're in here and you love you some stats, good for you. I don't read stats and find them that emotionally. Like, I don't read a stat and go, I can't believe this stat about housing prices. And what. Like, I just go, ah, you know, is my house going up or whatever? It's mostly selfish. And then I was reading stats about London. 2016 census. Over 100,000 people had no religious affiliation. Not just people that weren't Christians, people that had no religious affiliation. And over 100,000 lived by themselves. And I was like, I sat there and I... And I I honestly wept. I was like, there's over 100,000 people that have no relationship with God, and then there's over 100,000 people that don't have any relationship with each other? I'm like, that that just, there's tension there. There is this reality that there are people all around us right now that don't yet know Jesus, don't know the good news of Jesus. And the problem is, and many of us know those people, is they try to fill their lives with all sorts of things. If I can just make enough money, get enough followers, then I'll feel valid and valued, and they're missing out on the one relationship their whole life was designed for, that is with God. And they're trying to fill it, and they're trying to earn it and get there, and they're missing the good news of Jesus. And God will spend their life. He's not slow to move but he will answer and give them the choice to reject him. And we as the church have an opportunity to tell a different story. We have the opportunity to live lives that look different. We have the opportunity to invite people to see Jesus for who he is. We feel the weight of the people around us that don't yet know Jesus, and we're unwilling to simply leave it where it is. Now, that does not mean that we write papers and we go to someone and we outline 14 different reasons why they need to follow Jesus. It means that we step into every moment of every single day that God uses us to tell people of the good news of his son, Jesus. That is why we exist. We exist to make it all about people seeing Jesus. And knowing that there are people that are condemned to live a life disconnected from the one who created them should bother every single one of us, should stir something in us, and we should be people that can bring others into a restored relationship with God. Verse 19, so if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. And trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. This is, this is time for reflection. So you go, I want you to think honestly. It says, if you're suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right. And I want you to ask yourself, am I suffering in a manner that pleases God? Is the pain that I'm experiencing because I'm faithfully following God? Am I suffering in a way that pleases God? Is the pain that I'm experiencing because I'm faithfully following God? And with the answer to that question, my suggestion is to bring it to some people that love you and love Jesus and to say, do you agree? Like to actually bring it into community where you go, am I suffering in a way that pleases God? Is the pain that I'm experiencing because I'm faithfully following God? And what do the people who love me and love Jesus say? What's my life story. How am I living? Am I living in alignment? Am I living in a way that, that God looks at and goes, keep going? Or is he looking at me going, please stop? Verse 19 says, if you're suffering a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you. Trust your lives to the God who created you. Whether you have given your life to Jesus or you never have, this is the invitation. Trust your lives to the God who created you. This is what it all comes down to. Do you trust him? Are you willing to acknowledge before him where you struggle to trust him? Are you willing to grow in your trust of him? Will you come to him and say, I trust you again? Even though I can't see it, I trust you again. Why? It says here, trust your lives to the God who created you. For he will never fail you. People will fail you. Circumstances will fail you. Jobs will fail you. All sorts of things will fail you. God will never fail you. I wanna pray, and then we're gonna to worship together. God, thank you that you promised that you will not fail us. God, for those of us in the room that are struggling, that are suffering, that are being insulted for for the things that matter, I pray that you would strengthen our spines. If we're going through fiery trials, that you would temper us and turn us into who you want us to be, strengthen us. God, help us to see where we're suffering for your sake and help us to see where we are out of alignment. God, help us to be the kind of community that loves each other enough to tell the truth and also the kind of community that does it with the right heart. God, I don't know what you're saying to each one of us, but I believe that you want to speak individually to us. And so I pray that you would, that you would point out something that you are trying to say and give us the courage to respond in light of it. God, we trust you. God, we need you. I need you. As Collective Church, we want to be built by you. God, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like more information on Collective Church, find us on social media at This Is Collective Church or reach us on our website, collectivechurch.ca. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you Sunday.